gorgeous looking place. Um, uh, this week, however, instead of beginning with a review of where we've been over the previous weeks, I want to begin with a, uh, what, I'm, what I would call uh, a form of a meta-narrative that has run throughout this series on the kingdom. How many of you know what a meta-narrative is? You know what that phrase means? It's the big picture story. It's the big picture story. If you kind of step back and take the 20,000 foot view, you get the meta-narrative, you get the big story, the, the big story, the main point that, that, that runs through everything, the big picture account that ends up providing a framework for us to understand a subject like the kingdom. So when you're studying the kingdom, you can go to all kinds of specific scriptures and look at certain details about the kingdom and, and get, get really focused on different parts of the, of the trees and miss the forest. The meta-narrative is the forest view, the forest view uh, of, of a subject. So uh, I want to do that this morning instead of doing a review. And I want to take this forest view of the kingdom by, uh, by starting out with just uh, real quickly reading three verses and then, and then telling you the big story of the kingdom for a second. So here's the three verses. The first one is Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times, well, Paul writing in Romans, what's he talking about when he says the things that were written in earlier times? What's he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament, right? For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Here's the second one. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them. Uh, if you were going to just take a wild guess, now you might know 1 Corinthians 10 well enough to know the answer to this, but who's the them you think he might be talking about? Any guesses? In this case, it's actually Israel. He's talking about things that happened in the Old Testament. If you go back and read 1 Corinthians 10, you'll, you'll see that he was talking about uh, what happened under Moses' leadership in the wilderness. He says, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. There's the second time we see it. That was the same phrase that was used in, in, uh, in Romans 15, for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things were written for our instruction. The things that were written, that, that were given to us about Israel, the things that were given to us in the Old Testament, they were written to us for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This one's interesting. The book of Hebrews is a profound book. I, had a, uh, I have a, 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 a good friend who is a pastor, and he told me, he said, he said, I, I, I got this idea. I thought it would be a great idea. He said, I decided I would preach a series of messages on the book of Hebrews. He said, it, it did not go well. Um, and I don't know why it didn't go well for him. Uh, but but he, he, said, I, he said, it was like, it was like I, I don't know. He said, it just, something got stuck. He said, it was, it was hard book to do a series of messages. I, I don't know. But the book of Hebrews is a powerful book. It's a powerful book, and it's a profound book. What he says in Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.1 is this. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, it's a shadow. 
the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of them, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Now, it just so happens that that's where I'm at in my devotions. I have, I have uh, thus far, um, most recently, read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and I'm now in Numbers. When you read in the New Testament a reference to the law, you're talking about those five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and the writer of Hebrews says that, that law was a shadow. It was not the reality. It was not the substance. When, when on a sunny day you see a tree, that's the substance. Then you see the shadow cast on the ground, and you see an outline of it. You see a form. But please hear this. If you had never seen a tree, and from your vantage point you had no ability to see a tree, you could learn some things about a tree from looking at the shadow, but it would never be the same thing as seeing the tree. Never would it ever be the same thing as seeing a tree. A shadow is no, no substitute for a tree. No substitute. It doesn't belittle the shadow. It doesn't make it unimportant. It's just we have to understand the relationship of the two. He says the law is a shadow. I'm saying that to say this. This is the meta-narrative. This provides us an understanding for the meta-narrative, the big story about the kingdom. The Old Testament was written to teach us and to provide us with examples. It is also, however, full of shadows, full of types, full of pictures. We've talked about this before. You know, one of the greatest values of the Old Testament is that it teaches us profoundly the character of God. Teaches, for us, teaches to us profoundly the character of God. Uh, um, and I would say that it, it, might, it might be the book of Revelation in the New Testament that comes next in revealing to us the character of God. That, that uh, again, as I've been reading recently, that when God says to Moses, don't let anyone come near me while I'm on that mountain. Don't let anybody touch that mountain. And then I think about the book of Revelation and the angels that stand in the throne and they, around the throne and they cover themselves with their wings. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says that they do this day and night without ceasing. The message in heaven that gets repeated day and night without ceasing is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's pretty significant. That tells us something about the character of God. The Old Testament is rich in teaching us the character of God. It's rich in other ways as well. But, but it's vital for us to understand that uh, it's also full of, of shadows and types the reality was to come in Christ. And so the disciples, like other Jews, because they were looking at the Old Testament and looking for a, a certain kingdom 
they were unable to see that, the, that what was given to them in the, in the Old Testament, the understanding of the kingdom in the Old Testament was, it was literal, it was, it was valuable, there would be indeed an earthly kingdom that would come, but it was also a picture of a different kind of kingdom. It was a picture of a different kind of kingdom. And the kingdom that Jesus came to usher into this earth was a spiritual kingdom, not primarily an earthly kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom. And so as we read the Old Testament, we get all kinds of rich insights into the kingdom, but we have to be able to look at the kingdom of Israel and say, this is in some senses a picture of a spiritual kingdom. And that's why I went through this and, and, and we reviewed it over and over again, that all kingdoms have things like borders. Well, the, the borders of the kingdom of God today are not physical borders. Israel had physical borders. The kingdom of God today has spiritual borders. People are in it and people are out of it, but they're all over the planet. There are people that are in the kingdom that are in China right now, and they're in, and they're in Africa somewhere right now. There's no geographical boundary to this, but there are borders. People are in or people are out, right? And, and we go through and, and there's, a, there's a ruler over this kingdom. And there are laws for this kingdom. Oh, and by the way, there's an enemy of this kingdom as well. Their enemies were very physical. They had, they had people that they had to get out of a geographical land. We have different battles that we fight. We have to step back and see the big picture. And, and understand that, that, that the revelation of the Old Testament about the kingdom is one of shadows and types. And then the reality comes in the New Testament. They were looking for Jesus to reestablish a literal earthly kingdom. And he will. But he will do so in the millennium. And in fact, before this is done this morning, we're going to see that even that's not the ultimate reality of the kingdom. That's not the ultimate reality of the kingdom. They had trouble understanding the spiritual kingdom, however, that Jesus came to establish first. And that's why I think that passage we looked at in Acts chapter 1 is so huge that tells us that Jesus' primary message, his primary teaching point of his disciples throughout the days that he, that he spent with them after his resurrection was that he was teaching them about the kingdom. He kept teaching them about the kingdom because they were so locked in to a certain understanding of kingdom being wrapped up in the nation of Israel that he had to spend a significant amount of time teaching them about the spiritual reality of the, of the kingdom that he had come to establish through the gospel and through his work at the cross. As an earthly kingdom, the nation of Israel fought bloody battles, but in the spiritual kingdom, in the spiritual kingdom, you and I fight against spiritual powers of darkness and wickedness. We fight against a different kind of enemy. Israel was an earthly kingdom fighting bloody geographical battles and wars. The church, however, is a spiritual kingdom that is fighting spiritual battles. We have a different kind of warfare that we are engaged in. Ephesians 6.12 and 2 Corinthians 10.4-5 tells us about the battles that we're fighting. And in fact, the New Testament is explicit about this. 
Ephesians 6.12, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They are weapons. They're just not carnal weapons. They are not of the flesh. They are not physical in nature, we read in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We are not fighting. This is Ephesians 6, 12. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. That's not our battle. We are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Those are the spiritual forces of wickedness and darkness in this present age. You and I are doing war against spiritual entities. Now, this is the difference. And this is the big story. That the Old Testament provided us an understanding of a kingdom. But it was a picture. It was an earthly kingdom that pictured for us a spiritual kingdom that was to come. You and I live in that kingdom. We live in the spiritual kingdom that was established by the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. Now, um, in order to properly understand uh, and appreciate the verse that's going to be our text this morning, we're going to have to consider it in the light of some other scriptures. But let me read this verse as kind of the foundation that we're going to keep orienting ourselves to this morning. Here's Revelation 11:15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, "The kingdom." Now I put in parentheses some because it depends on what translation you read. The kingdom or kingdoms of this world has or have become the kingdom or kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. When you read that, does anything immediately come to mind? What comes to mind? Handel's Messiah, right? The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Let's talk about this verse this morning. I think it's a great place to close this series of messages. We're going to have to look at it, though, in the light of some other scriptures. So let's do that. We're going to keep coming back to this. I want to start with what I'm going to call kingdom design. With, with Revelation 11:15 in the back of your mind, listen to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Perfectly clear, isn't it? I agree, it's a little bit of a challenge to read through that, right? So the idea of it is this. Here's what Paul is saying. The point of this passage is this. This is a millennial passage. It's a millennial passage. It's a passage that's talking about the millennium. 
the millennial kingdom. Here's what Paul is saying. During the thousand-year reign of Christ, Christ will be on this earth, and he's going to rule. And part of what he's going to do is take all the enemies of God and bring them under subjection to himself. He's going to bring them under his control. He's going to conquer them, and he's going to rule over them. Now, in the book of Revelation, we read that even, even at the very end, when all has gone well and he's brought, it seems, the whole earth under his rulership, there's one last big rebellion, and that's when he squashes the last rebellion of all. He says, uh-uh, you're not going to rebel against me again. But the point of the passage in 1 Corinthians is that Jesus is going to be the one that brings all things under himself. That is not my job. Only Jesus can do that. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be concerned about it. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be at, 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 uh, engaged in it. It means this. It means you and I are not going to bring everything in subjection to God. In fact, in fact, if I could be so bold, you're not going to bring much of anything into subjection to God. you got a full-time fight with your own flesh bringing that in subjection to God, just like I do. <laughs> i got a full-time job taking care of my own flesh. I've got, a, I've got my hands full, endeavoring to minister to the, the wife and the kids, the, the, the children that God has given to me. And they've got their full-time job helping me see how I can be a, a faithful servant of Jesus. And then we live in a world in which we are called to be engaged. We, we, we work with people. We have neighbors. We, we, have, we live in a, in a country that gives us certain freedoms and certain responsibilities. And in all of this, you and I have an opportunity to be representatives of the kingdom in these, in these contexts. But let us never get confused about the fact that the one who is going to bring all things into subjection is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. All other dreams are utopian dreams. Jesus is going to bring everything under subjection to himself. And then Paul says that, that during that millennium, as Christ brings all things and, and, and puts all rebellion down, he is going to unite everything on this earth under his authority, and then he's going to go like this. He's going to go, Father, here it is. It's all yours. It's all yours. It's all yours. He will hand all things over to the Father. Listen to this. And at that moment the millennial kingdom will come to an end and the eternal kingdom will start. Oh, at that moment, there's going to be a judgment, a great white throne judgment, and there's going to be, there's going to be a radical transformation. The elements are going to melt. This earth is going to get burned up and there's going to be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and eternity is going to start. Eternity is going to kick in. And in that place... The rule of God will be absolute and perfect for the rest of time. The millennium is going to be great, but it's temporary. It's temporary. It's a thousand years. Thus, you could say, if you're picturing it, you could say there's four kingdoms. Israel was an earthly kingdom. The church is a spiritual kingdom. And then each one kind of gets a fulfillment. The millennial kingdom... The promises to Israel are made good. Israel...
comes the head of the nations. You read, you read the book of Revelation and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Old Testament references there, right? Because there's going to be a fulfillment for the nation of Israel and then eternity comes. So Israel, church, millennium, eternity. Kind of four expressions of the kingdom of God and how that works in time. So we have to have this big picture in mind. This is what God is doing. This is the way, this is the, way the world is moving. This is where it's all headed. This is, what it's gonna, this is what it's going to be in the future. The second thing, there's kingdom design. That's a design of the kingdom. Israel, church, millennium, and then eternity. That's the design of God through history. The second thing, sorry, I got to click faster. Sometimes still I'm not used to this little thing here. Um, so the second thing is what I'll call kingdom desires. We have to understand uh, Revelation 11, 15, in light of Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. How do we understand this? Well, part of what we need to understand about the kingdom is that this is to be the deepest desire of our heart. This is to be one deep desire of our hearts. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. How many of you would like the kingdom of Jesus to come? That wasn't super convincing. How many want the kingdom of Jesus to come? You looking forward to the kingdom coming? You know, there is a reason for the phrase, till kingdom come, right? But most people don't know what they're saying when they say it. It's kind of passed into the common language. I bet you most Americans have heard or, or, or used the phrase, kingdom come. But most of them have no idea what it's talking about. What it's talking about is Jesus is going to come back. It's kingdom come. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, listen to this. My brothers and sisters, for you and me, Jesus' return is exciting. But i got to tell you this. You read the book of Revelation, and the return of Jesus is... What word do I want to use? Uh, I mean, for most of the world, it's going to be really inconvenient. It's going to be... It's going to be... Uh, It's going to be a difficult change to adjust to. Because my brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes back, everything changes. It's a game changer. Everything changes. The whole world's flow gets absolutely interrupted. In fact, it comes to a screeching halt. And Jesus says something like, we're not going that way anymore. I'm going to tell you where we're headed. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a, uh, a brick wall kind of stop. Jesus is coming back. Jesus' return is coming. And, and, and Jesus teaches us that you and me, we are to desire this enough to pray for it. Lord Jesus, please come back. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now, what are we praying when we pray, thy kingdom come? Well, 
When we pray, listen, when we pray for the kingdom to come, if we understand the fullness of what the kingdom is, we're praying for a lot of things in one phrase. We are praying for things like our flesh to be subdued under the power of the Holy Spirit. May your kingdom grow in my life. We're praying for people to get saved. May darkness get pushed back as your kingdom grows when more people come in. But you know, frankly, we're also praying for things like righteousness in a nation. We're praying for things that would be pleasing to God to flourish in this world, His will to be done. You know, um, uh, well, I don't, I don't need to go any further, but how many of you know this world is full of activities that wound the heart of God, that grieve the heart of God? When you pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying a very general prayer. It's a legitimate prayer, but it's very general. Think specifically and pray that prayer out, and you'll find yourself praying that evil will be pushed back so that the, so that the, the things that please the heart of God can come into their place. You're praying against evil. Thy kingdom come. And that phrase gets further defined for us by the next one. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the kingdom of God in heaven is unopposed. The kingdom of God in heaven, his will is done. When he tells an angel, there's no maybe. When he orders an angel, there's no maybe. But listen to this. When he talks to human beings, there's always a maybe. How many of you have disobeyed God once or twice in your life? You know, the sad thing, it's sad, but it's also amazing. This earth is the place where, where the kingdom of God gets resisted and where God's will is not always done. In heaven, when he gives an order, it's done. It's done. Angels simply do as they're told. You and I are the creatures that have the unmitigated gall to resist God. That's you and me. We, we pray, thy kingdom come. Well, Jesus gives us a partial explanation of what that means when he says, what you're asking for is God's will to be done in the same degree on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one practical aspect now, uh, of, of, what the, of what it means for the, the kingdom of God to come. Listen to what you're asking for. God, my desire is that in me, in me, and in this world, that your kingdom would come through your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that that's going to take place in the millennial kingdom and then eventually in eternity. But we're asking God, let there be a reflection of that now. And then, God, bring that day soon. Bring that day soon. I don't know how soon the return of Jesus is. I'm not into making predictions. You're never going to hear me make a prediction. The closest thing I have ever made to a prediction, some of you have heard me say, was this. If I ever stand at one of my children's weddings when they get married and Jesus hasn't come back yet, I'm going to get surprised. And guess what? 
in October, I got surprised because I stood and performed my son's wedding and Jesus hadn't come back yet. Well, I got to figure out something else. That was the closest thing I could come to a prediction. I don't know when he's going to come back. But I got to tell you this, when I look at the world around me, I keep saying to myself things like, God, how much longer are you going to let this go? How much longer? I think about him dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, and I think to myself, how much longer, Lord, are you going to let this go? How much longer will you put up with this? I mean, to me, it looks like the return of Jesus could legitimately be any day. And then I've got to tell you that in my heart, it couldn't be soon enough. Couldn't be soon enough. Lord, now. Now. Today would be a good time. The point of it is this. When it comes to some of the battles that we fight on the inside of us, this, this prayer right here is a very difficult prayer to pray with all your heart. Because, because we have unconquered domains in our lives that it's hard to say with full heartedness, God, I really want to give this over to you. Because a lot of us have things that we want to keep a certain measure of control over ourselves or a certain presence of in our lives. But when he teaches us to pray this prayer, what he's saying is that we should be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That that should be our top priority. That the deep desire of your heart should be, thy kingdom come. God, I want your kingdom. God, I want your kingdom. I want it in my life. I want it in my home, in my family. I want your kingdom in this, in this world in which I live. And ultimately, Lord Jesus, I can't wait for your kingdom to come in the millennial reign. I'm looking forward to your kingdom. Your kingdom come, Lord. In, in the fullness of what that means, your kingdom come so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The third thing we need to understand is what I'll call to get to see this before we fully understand Revelation 11. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That's going to happen. But we've got to understand that in light of Matthew 4, 8 through 10. This is when Jesus denied the kingdom. That is when he refused to take it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things will I give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, please notice this. Kingdom denial. Listen to this. Jesus did not deny that Satan had the right to give him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus did not say to Satan, you can't offer me that. He didn't say to me, he didn't say to him, they're not yours to give. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. You know, in the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this world, lowercase g. Lowercase g, the God of this world. I want you to imagine this. Satan takes Jesus up onto a high mountain and I don't know how this works, but he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says to him, I'll give them to you. 
I will give them to you. They're mine. I will give them to you. If you just one time fall down in front of me and worship me. Now you got to think about what that means. In the book of Philippians, we're told that through his suffering, Jesus earned the title, Lord. That through his suffering, that he, that he, because of that, has been given the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That title was hard won through deep suffering. And here Satan was telling Jesus, I'll just give it all to you. I'll give it to you. We can avoid all the drama and all the hard stuff. I don't think Satan knew what was coming, but Jesus did. Jesus did. Satan offers it all to him, and Jesus denies it. Jesus refuses it. I will not take it from you. I will not accept it from you. Not that way. Not that way. Jesus did not deny Satan's right to offer him the kingdoms of the world, but Jesus did refuse Satan's offer because it was the wrong time and it was the wrong methodology. I can't bow before you. I cannot bow before you. It is written, shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. That's it. There's only one that can be worshipped. So I cannot accept your offer on those terms. Cannot worship you. Cannot worship you. That's where we come back to Revelation 15. Listen to 11.15. Notice this. The fact is, however, that Revelation 11.15 shows us that what Jesus once denied, he will in the future take for himself. And it won't be by bargaining and it won't be on the devil's terms. It will be, I'm going to take it because I've won it. It's mine. I conquered it. He's going to take the kingdoms of this world, but he's going to take them for himself by conquest. He's going to take them. There will be no bargain with his, with his adversary. There will be no bargain with the enemy. What Jesus once denied in the future, he is going to take for himself by right of conquest. Now that has all kinds of implications. It means that you and I are not going to get the world ready for him. We're not going to clean it all up so that it's ready for Jesus to come back to a nice sanitized planet. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying, but it means it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Jesus is going to conquer this world. He's going to take it by force. He's going to storm it from heaven. And there will be no stopping him when he does. That's how the kingdoms of the world are going to become his. He started to take it at the cross. And he's going to declare that it's his when he returns. And so that leads to the last point here for us this morning. How come this won't click now? Um, can you help me out, Judah? There we go. The last point is what I'll call kingdom dominion. And we can explain this from Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? 
For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. You see, the kingdom is not going to come. The fullness of salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the fullness of Christ's authority will not come until Satan is ultimately cast down. Until he is ultimately dealt with. The kingdom will come only in full power when Satan is dethroned as the God of this world. When he is dethroned, he will be cast down. And it will be at that moment that the victory of the cross is made complete. When that happens, there will be no remaining hindrance to the presence and the growth of the kingdom. There will be nothing that stands in its way. It will be Jesus' rule, absolutely. You see, the end of this verse tells us what is standing in the way of the kingdom now. Tells us what's standing in the way. It's telling us what the battle is. See, what's standing in the way of the kingdom now is the fact that there is an accuser. Who's the accuser? Who is he? He's Satan. That there is an unbound Satan who is at work in this world. And as long as that's the case, there are going to be limitations to the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It will not, it will not be fully in force in this world. But there's coming a day when the accuser is going to be taken down. Now listen, what does it mean? What's the significance of this accuser? You see, right now, we have to understand that when we look at the current formulation of the world, a spiritual kingdom that is being opposed by an accuser. Listen, right now, the accuser, when he looks at an unbeliever, says, he, he has committed many sins and for those sins, he is mine and stands condemned. And he's right. But he accuses us as well. And the fact of the matter is that as he accuses me, I recognize that there is one who is opposing his accusations in heaven, who is pleading for me, but my blood was shed. And that tells us what the battle of the age is. The battle of the age is for the souls of men. This is the battle of the age in which you and I are currently present. When, when Jesus comes back, all the geopolitical stuff and all the immorality and all the evil stuff in this world is going to be taken care of. But that stuff is not going away while the accuser is at work in this world. He's going to have to be dealt with before that's finished. The battle today is primarily this. We are in a battle against, not flesh and blood, but against the power of an accuser who keeps people bound in sin and who is accusing you, you of your sins. You know why he accuses you of your sins? It's not because he has any hope of actually condemning you to hell. The blood of Jesus pleads for you, and that's more than enough. But he accuses us to keep us powerless, to keep us silent, to keep us intimidated, to keep us fearful, to keep us unengaged in the gospel. And I want to close by telling you this. 
My brothers and sisters, if you want a real fight on your hands, if you're like itching for a real fight, all you have to do is start talking about the gospel and you'll find all the opposition you can handle. You'll have so much opposition you won't know what to do with it all. Because the gospel is an offense to this world. Please hear this. And it's increasingly becoming offensive. It's getting more offensive, it seems to me. In a day and age where we have a nonstop message that says, hey, we're going to make the world such a beautiful place. We're going to end racism by ourselves. Oh, and by the way, we're going to end the, the bigotry of, of genderism. And we're going to end the bigotry of marriage only being one kind. We're going to make the world a really nice place for everybody. You stand up and you preach the gospel that says people's sins need the Savior, and you will find yourself offending everybody. It'll be the offense of the cross. The gospel is offensive because it comes up against man's ability to do something about himself and tells him, no, you can't do anything about yourself. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. It's an offensive message. And it's growing increasingly offensive in this hyper-activist age that we're living in. It's the battle we're fighting. It's the battle we're fighting. This is where the war rages, and this is the one we're supposed to be engaged in. I want to close by saying this. I asked you earlier, um, what you thought of when you thought of Revelation 11:15. Let's close. Just think about it with me for a second. There's a voice in heaven voices in heaven. And all of a sudden they unite to say this. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That is quite a statement. Now you think back over the fact that the kingdoms of this world have been offered to him and he refused them. He refused him. Not that way. Not that way. You think back. You think over the scriptures that we read. That you and I are in a time where Revelation 11.15 is what we're waiting for. We should be saying in our hearts, God, I can't wait for that day to happen. When is that chorus going to break out in heaven? When are they going to finally start singing that song? And how good is that day going to be? When all heaven breaks out, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. What a day that will be. Amen? Amen. Until then, we're hungering for that day. We are longing for that day. We're praying for that day. That is our desire. And then to think, it was once offered to him, but Jesus was the one who never, never succumbed to the devil, never gave in to him in any way, shape, or form. Uh-uh, not that way. Not that way. I will take them from you someday. 
I will not accept them from you. I will take them from you. I will conquer them from you. They will be mine. Not that way. My brothers and sisters, I just, out of curiosity, I, uh, I googled Handel's Messiah. I'm sure there's a lot of versions of it out there. I just picked the first one that came up. It was about four minutes and 15 seconds long. And I, YouTube is good for some things. It's got a little time tracker on the bottom. I hit play, and for the first approximately 11, uh, one minute and 15 seconds, it's um, for the, uh, it's, uh, how does it start? Um, um, uh, somebody tell me. Yeah, but there's a, there is another phrase. Hallelujah. Oh. What's that? For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, right? So it's going through this whole, this, this, this whole buildup. For the Lord God, the omnipotent reigneth. And how many of you agree that he does? But how many of you also agree that whatever his reign is right now, the expression of that on this earth is... Highly hindered by the fact that there's a, an unbound devil that is doing everything he can to shake in his, his, his fist in the face of the God, the Lord God omnipotent who reigns. And for about a minute and 15 seconds, it's hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Well, that's true. But about 75 seconds into the song, the first time the words change from that, it then all of a sudden becomes the kingdoms of this world. And sometimes you get that, the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world. Right? So you go, what in the world is going on in this song? You know what's going on in this song? It's 1 Corinthians. It's it's the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, but there's been a rebel at loose in his world for a long time. And now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I mean to tell you that is a big deal. Here's what I want to close with. I'm not just doing this to try to rev you up. In fact, what I want to close with is quite the opposite of that. Please hear this. That verse, Revelation 11:15, is, I, I don't want to overstate, but it, it is really the glory of the church, right? To be able to say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That is the day to celebrate, man. That is what we are looking forward to. But please hear this. We are living in a world that is like You ever seen a lake that was really calm? This past year, I, I've been to Lake Michigan numerous times. But this past year, we went to Lake Michigan uh, some relatives of ours have a house. And I was shocked 
at what that lake can look like sometimes. That's a big body of water. The waves are never like ocean waves as big. They get like this, right? But what I, what I was shocked by was not the size of the because they never got that huge, but the, but the violence of that water was unbelievable. We had one day where there was a certain, and the wind was just howling, and I'm telling you, it didn't, it didn't do the whole wavy thing as much as the ocean. I've seen ocean waves that were much bigger than Lake Michigan waves. But there was just this flying water, and it was, it was up, I looked and said, this lake is out of control. And you start hearing stories about people who die on Lake Michigan and, and ships that get sunk on Lake, and you don't think of ships sinking on Lake Michigan, right, on a lake. Well, on that lake they do. You and I are living in a world that is in absolute turmoil. And it seems like there's people that are just trying to rev up the turmoil more. Just create a good atmosphere of, of chaos. My brothers and sisters, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. And we ought to be clear on what our battle is. And I'm telling you right now, if there's one people that ought to be the example of stability and peace in this world, it's you and me. I'm telling you it's the most countercultural thing you could be, is to say, in a world that they're trying to just rile everybody up all the time and, and get everybody on a razor's edge and a fever pitch, the most countercultural thing you can do is to say, I will be at peace with my God. And then I will try to share that peace with people around me. And I, will, and, I, and I believe that increasingly in the days to come, you will find yourself being asked for the reason of the hope that is in you. How are you so calm? But please hear this. But you're going to have to choose in these days to be Mary and not Martha. I don't mean that as an insult to Martha. There's work that needs to be done. But I do mean this. I mean, you and I must be that people who are unmoved and unfazed by what we see in the world around us. Because no matter how bad it looks, we know that the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of this world, we know where all this is going. It is, listen to this, it is well in hand. God's got this. It's under his control. He is not threatened by what he sees happening in this world, and he's not scared of it, and he's not surprised by it, and he's not worried about it. He's not having a panic attack right now over it. So guess what? Put your eyes on him and join him in his peace. And then have the courage to stand up with the gospel and tell other people that they don't have to be afraid as well. I firmly believe, I firmly believe, I don't know how else to say this, I firmly believe that in this hyper age of media intensity, the church needs to step back with a voice that just says quietly, we know where the answer is. And we can help you if you want it.
let me offer to you Jesus. Let me recommend to you Jesus. My brothers and sisters, that's the battle we've been called to fight. It's deep, it's powerful, but it comes from a place of, of complete confidence in the outcome of human history. That we know that the kingdoms of this world will get turned over, <laughs> turned upside down, brought to their knees, and brought under the subjection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where this is headed. And you and I don't have to participate in the turmoil of our day. We can participate in the activity. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it needs to be done from a position of rest in what Christ has done. Can I ask if you're on, well, I'm just gonna, you don't have to respond. But I wonder how many of us feel the riled up feeling of our day. Feel the turmoil of it. Feel like there's, can I tell they're trying to do that to us. Don't let them steal your peace. Don't let it happen. Stay clear-headed. Stay peaceful-hearted. And then stay laser-focused on task to what God has us here for. And in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Amen? because you're under the one who is going to be victorious over all of this. It's not your fight to fight, it's not your job, it's okay. Do good, promote good, and promote the gospel. And then be at peace and draw people to Jesus. Draw people to Jesus. If we could close, I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads and I'm gonna ask if uh, if our musicians would come back, and we're not going to sing it, but I'm going to ask them to play it. We're going to sing this song again at some point in the near future. Um, Whitney, what's, what's the title of the song? I, I know the song. I can't remember. The, the one that's been going over in your heart. Made me glad. He has made me glad. I will say of God, he is my fortress, my tower. Is that what it is? My tower, my deliverer, my portion, right? Strong tower, deliverer. That's who he is. I'm going to ask our musicians to play that. And I, I'm just going to ask you to be brutally honest with yourself for a moment. If you find yourself in a state of turmoil on the inside, in a state of anxiety on the inside, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to ask you to go to Jesus and ask him to tell you what to do. Maybe, maybe we're filling ourselves with things that are destabilizing us and what we need to fill ourselves with is something else. But if you would just put your heart before God and say, God, I want to be your representative on this church and I want to fight the right battles. Lord Jesus, I want to be a soldier of the cross. I, 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 want, I want to be what this world needs today. This, this day is loud. It's loud. It's anxious. It's constantly pitting one person against another and one group against another. Constant fight, constant warfare, constant creating of turmoil. My brothers and sisters, may the church rise up with the peace that 
that comes from knowing the end of the story. I'm just going to give you Jesus. I'm going to give you Jesus. And I'm not going to back down from him. And I'm going to live that out. I'm going to live it out. I'm going to let others see that in me. I refuse to participate in your creation. I'm going to share Jesus. I know, I know too many people, too many people who are struggling with deep anxiety. And I'm not saying it's a one-size-fits-all. There's, there's probably lots of reasons for it. Whitney, I appreciate you sharing as openly as you did. And I really appreciate the way you responded to what you experienced the other night. Okay, God, I'm just going to take, take my attention away from these thoughts, and I'm going to start singing to myself about your goodness and what it means to trust in you. I mean, there are some of us that really need this. Talk to some people that are just... And I wonder when the last time they had a deep breath was. When they felt peace last. Because in the kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what we looked at. Lord, I come to you this morning praying for your people. I just want to thank you for Revelation 11:15, that assurance that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That your rulership will be eternal. It will be complete. It will find its final expression in eternity in an environment where there is no longer opposition. Thank you that there's a day when the accuser of the brethren will be cast down, put in his place, bound, his influence eliminated. We thank you for that. Lord, there's, there's a lot of turmoil in our world right now. And I just pray that you would keep us as believers above that turmoil. Not in the sense that we're not engaged, or, or, but we're not, we're not troubled. We're not anxious. And I pray that you would also keep us focused on what we know to be the answer to the real battle that is being fought in this world. I pray that Jesus would be, would be all to us. Lord, that's, that's what the end goal of all this is. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that, that Christ may be all in all. You will deliver everything up, Lord Jesus, that you may be all in all. That's where this is headed. 
And I just pray, Lord, that we would align ourselves with that truth that, that is there in 1 Corinthians 15, Lord, that, that all things would be summed up in you. Lord, I pray that you would give a peace to your people. Not a peace that accepts evil, that gets comfortable with evil, quite the opposite. A peace that knows that the triumph over evil is certain, is certain. A peace that allows us to focus all our energies on the fight that needs to be fought. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking this morning for anyone in this room that has found anxiety to be a real part of their lives. There's a turmoil that goes on there. Their mind can't shut off. They find themselves troubled often in their hearts and in their minds. I pray, O oh Lord, that this word, the kingdoms of this world, have become the kingdoms of our God and of, their, and of his Christ, would speak a word of peace to them, that our God has us under control. I pray that the songs that were sung this morning would play over in their hearts, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Lord, that that truth would really sink down in and take root and bring to our hearts that, that, uh, that stability, that leveling off, Lord. We would not be consumed by the, by the troubled spirit of our day. So that we can be in a place, Lord, where we can share with others the hope that is in us. Pray that you'd minister to your people today. You'd speak to every heart. And Lord, it would seem that, especially today, the appropriate way to just finish would be to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, there's a mess here. We're gonna do our best to be faithful to what you've called us to do, to share the gospel. But Lord Jesus, today would be a good day for you to return. We long for it. We hunger for it, Lord. We're waiting for it. The Spirit and the Bride are crying out, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We want you here. We look forward to you being here, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And until that day, may your kingdom come in our hearts. And may we spread your kingdom throughout this earth through the gospel. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Maybe we won't make it till next Sunday. Maybe we won't see you here. Yay, right? Somebody said yay. <laughs> Amen. I, I hope to see you somewhere else. Amen. It'd be good. But if we see you here next Sunday, my prayer is that God will give you fruit for his kingdom, give you deep peace in your heart this week. May he 
May he bless you with his presence. May his kingdom grow in your life. Lord bless you and keep you. And if we're here next Sunday, look forward to seeing you next Sunday. God bless y'all.